0: Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right
1: now, there is no trace.
0: Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. It's hard to help someone when they're already gone. Gone. Already. Hey, everyone. I'm Nina Instead, and I'm here today with Collier Landry. Collier is a podcast host and documentary filmmaker, and he's here to talk about his story. You may be familiar with his work, the documentary A Murder in Mansfield, or his podcast Moving Past Murder. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Nina.
0: So when I do interviews like this with someone who's been through um, something regarding a case or historic event, depending on how you want to look at it. I find it's best to just let you talk and let you tell your story because you tend to have an idea of what you want to say and what you want to share.
1: Sure, that 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 works. Um, so I guess we'll start at the beginning. Well, we're both from, I mean, I know you live in Georgia now, but we're both from that... Uh, it seems to be a slightly sketchy area of the midwest. Yes.
0: <laughs> yes, we are.
1: Uh, um Ohio, Indiana, Michigan area. Um tri-state area. I don't know why things of this nature seem to go down in these places, but they do. After listening to your podcast, I'm like, wow, there's a lot. Um yeah, and uh yeah, so when I was 11 years old, um I guess let me maybe take it back. I, um, when I was, I, I grew up in what I thought was like a very normal childhood, right? Mom and dad. And I think that, you know, I didn't really realize there were issues in my family until 1989. And that is when my father introduced me to his girlfriend, or what I suspected was his girlfriend. And, I was, again, wasn't really sure of what the family dynamic was. I know that my father, who was a doctor, often slept on the sofa, and I spent the, I would say, 95% of my time, I think I testified in court, 99% of my time, but I was very much in, um, I was under the impression that I had a normal life. And then... I spent all the majority of my time with my mother, who was, you know, I was like her little sidekick. I discovered this about my father, and then my all of a sudden, out of nowhere, my parents are getting a divorce, and I'm starting to feel like okay, I'm every other kid that I know, right? And so, I um. My father and my mother, things got really nasty. And what I ended up sort of finding out later is that my mother and my father had an agreement. My mother was very aware of my father's philandering and she even knew about his pregnant mistress. <laughs> and she, yeah, and she um, she was like, look, if you don't involve our son, you can do whatever the hell you want. I don't I don't care. But it wasn't until he involved me that she's like, you know, you can you broke the code. <laughs> you kind of you know, you know, and so she um she it was very protective of me. So she filed for divorce from my father and what ensued was just really really nasty. And you know, I was sort of a little bit ping pong between back and forth between the two of them. But it wasn't until I woke up in the middle of the night on December 31st, 1989 to the sound of what I thought was a scream. And then I heard these two loud thuds that I knew something was really bad. And, I heard these footsteps walk down the hall and they stopped in my doorway and I was, you know, I always slept as a child with my door open. So I was laying and I just happened to look with my peripheral vision, I could see these feet in the doorway and I was like, don't look up. And I firmly believe that if I had looked up, I wouldn't be sitting here. And I ended up, the footstep, the feet went away. And I woke up the next morning, went downstairs, and my father was sitting on the couch. And, or sorry, before that, I ran to my mother's bedroom, looking for blood, scrambling sheets. I noticed the sheets were all out of order. It was a mess. Like, my, the, the way the bed was left was not a normal way my mother would leave it. My mother, I still to this day wake up, and the first thing I do is make my bed. <laughs> and so that was my mother's sort of M.O. And I come downstairs and I see my father sitting on the couch. He has a towel wrapped around him. He had just taken a shower. And I said, where is my mother? And he doesn't say anything. I say, where is my mother? And my father says, well, mommy took a little vacation, Collier. And then he proceeds to launch into this whole sort of diatribe on how, you know, my grandmother had just arrived from, he had brought her to Uh, the house the night before on New Year's and um, New Year's Eve. And my grandmother, who was his mother, was very close to her. And he, uh, she comes in the room and my father starts saying, okay, look, uh, he starts telling me the story of how my mother came down. My mother, um, they got into an argument. My mother threw credit cards at him and that the sound that I must have heard of the thuds was her purse hitting the wall because she threw it at him. All these things, right? And what happened is my father goes into this whole thing, okay, we're not going to call the police. We're not going to call the FBI. And I'm like thinking to myself, the FBI, like we're in this small little sort of, not not po- not to be derogatory, but like this sort of like podunk town in Ohio. Why would there be, why would anyone, <laughs> why would anybody call the FBI. Like why would the FBI be interested? So it ended up being this this whole thing. And as soon as my father left, I I immediately called one of my mother's, several of my mother's friends. And I said, look, and I explained to them what happened. And I said, I need you. You know, my father threatened me. He said, don't call the police. I need you to call the police because I want to get in trouble. But this is what happened. So they called the police. And Uh, these two uniform officers show up at the house and, um, I'm my grandmother is throwing a fit because my father says, we don't want to call the police. We don't want to call the FBI. And again, it's like red flag, red flag. Like, okay, why? (laughs) Well, because the biggest red flag to me was my father said, we don't want to call the FBI. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, we live in this small, like. I don't mean to be derogatory, and I said this before. Uh, a podunk town in Ohio, like the FBI is not come. the FBI is not coming here. I'm thinking to myself, this is really strange. And um, so I'm walking around with the uniform officers, and my grandmother's carrying on, and she's trying to call my dad and everything. So I said, um, I said, uh, you know, I don't trust my father as far as I could throw him, but I could tell that these officers were like. They they already had a preconceived notion, I believe. And, you know, I obviously don't understand this as a twelve year or as an eleven year old boy about missing persons cases and things like that. But I can tell that like they're like thinking to themselves, okay, well, yeah, they got into a fight and she left. Right? They're getting a divorce. So, um, which is very typical. Uh or a very typical response. So um the officers leave, and I am Pedantically, like while my father's gone, you know, a, a day goes past and there's nothing, and you know we're we're having these odd strategy meetings of where did that, where did my father, where did mommy go? Oh, she could have gone to Toronto. She could have gone this. My dad's like taking suggestions on like where my mother could have gone. Like, where do you think she went, Collier? And I'm like, I don't know. He's like, oh, she's probably she would love to go to Tyson's Corners, and Tyson's Corners and, in Washington D.C. She's probably over there shopping. It's like. You know, I said, mommy always wanted to take me to Toronto. Oh, yeah, she's probably in Toronto. We should check Toronto. And you know, I bet you that's where she's at. <laughs> like these brainstorming sessions.
0: So you're having these surreal conversations with your father while your mother is missing.
1: Yes. While I know that he killed my mother. And while I'm literally oh going, this is just, this is, this is what's happening. So I, um I, call my mother's friends. So this is probably like January 1st, 1990 and I say, "What's going on? I just gave I I talked to these officers, what's happening?" And they said, "Well, it's a missing persons case, caller." And I'm like, "It's not a missing there's no missing, she's missing, but th- this is not like a who done it. Like I know who did it. Like I know what happened." And what ended up happening is is they kept calling <laughs> the radio like the like I believe they called like the news stations or they kept calling the police department. They said like this kid and like, she would never leave her son. We know that she would never leave her son. If she was going to leave, she would have made him pack a bag and she would have gotten him out of the house with her, with her, you know, I had a, a newly adopted sister from Taiwan, like six months previous. So you mean know, like she would have taken her kids. So this police detective shows up at the house and his name is Lieutenant David Mesmore, And, my grandmother's throwing a fit. She won't let him in. And he's just, he's, Dave is very nice, very charming. He's like, well, you know, let's, uh, you know, and then I'm like, come on in, <laughs> the door and let him in. And my grandmother's furious. She's calling my, my father again. This is my, my grandmother is, you know, my father's mother who was extremely close to my mother, which is the odd thing. But, you know, like a good Italian mother is very defensive of her child, her firstborn. So, My father, um, you know, she's screaming and hollering. And I basically say to to Lieutenant Messmore, you know, look, my mother, like my mother mother would never leave me. Like my mother is not like missing. My mother is, is dead. And he's looking at me like this kid and he gives me his business card. And so the next day school starts and I'm like, okay, this is my chance. Because that night, like, so it's January 1st, New Year's Day. My father, like, his girlfriend comes over and brings, like, a pork roast and sauerkraut. And it's just super weird. Like, okay, we're okay, we doing Insta family. Like, this is very odd. And I'm, and I'm disgusted. I'm just like, this is like, what is going on? Like, why are people trying to pretend this is somehow normal? <laughs> and so I go to school the next day and I say to my principal, I give her the card and I'm like, you need to call the Mansfield police department and you need to talk to this guy. I want to talk to this guy. So Dave Westmore comes down to the, to the school and see, the thing is, is that at home, like I have my grandmother hovering around me. I have, you know, my father potentially coming back, all these variables at school. I know that I'm in a safe place and I just tell him the whole story my father's violent history, the nasty divorce, the girlfriend, the this, the, that, like his odd behavior, all of these things. And slowly over the course of 25 days, this all starts to unravel. And I kept going back, you know, every day I go to school and I'd be like, call Dave Messmore. And I would literally talk to Dave at school and I would say, Dave, so tonight I'm going to go home. And while my grandmother's downstairs dealing with my sister, I'm going to run upstairs and I'm going to pull the bookcases out of the wall to look for my mother's body. Like these are the conversations I'm having as an 11-year-old child. I'm going to look for her purse because my dad said that she took her purse. I'm going to find her purse because I knew that she wouldn't leave without this one purse that she used all the time. Like these are the clues that I'm looking for. And this is- I,
0: I have to ask, were you scared? Were you afraid?
1: I was very afraid. But the thing is, is that I was also extremely determined because I knew what my father had done. I'm like, look, motherfucker, like, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get away with this. And so that is my, that was without question, my motivation. And, you know, it was like game on. As soon as he said, mommy took a little vacation call here. I'm like, game on. Okay. I see you. All right. And. You know, I I very cheekily say this, but like this is what happens when you don't let your child have a Nintendo. <laughs> you know, I was the last kid in my friend group to get a Nintendo. I got a Nintendo that year for Christmas. Like this is what happens. Like this is the monster that you create. So the fact is, is that I was very, you know, I, I you know, I education was a, was there was a very high value place on education in my family. Both my parents were Ivy League educated. Uh, my father obviously is a doctor. My mother had her her degree in uh, as a dental hygienist from University of Pennsylvania. So there was a lot of that going on. So for me, um, you, you know, it, it became this mission of I'm going to find out what happened to my mother. And it wasn't, you know, so Dave Messmore is coming back and forth to school. My father is coming home every night because he's moving his practice to Erie, Pennsylvania. And I kept saying to Dave Messmore, like, look, you know, what's going on with the case? And he's like, you know, we haven't found anything, this, that, and the other. And I'm giving him more and more clues as they unfold. But it's, my father's behavior is becoming stranger and stranger. Things like my father, who was very violent and who had, you know, like like this uh, proclivity towards violence and this, complete and obsession over like violent movies and things like he would show me and he'd be like don't cover your eyes you're a little pussy don't do this and this is what real men do and things like this like this was his attitude towards me growing up all of a sudden becomes like I'm playing a video game on said Nintendo that I got and it was a fighting game and he goes oh this is really violent I can't believe I bought this game for you I'm like who are you and that's like red flag, ding, 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 red flag. And then he's like coming home. He has marks on his hands and stuff. I can see them. And he is like complaining about his sore. And I rub Ben Gay on him. And he's like, can you rub this on my shoulders? I've been moving a lot of stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God. And what happens is, is my father ends up, and I talk about all this a lot in a lot more detail in the podcast, but my father takes me to his office to go get some paperwork and he goes into the gas station to pay for gas and I'm like, now's my chance and I start rummaging through his truck and I find in the little cubbyhole slash glove box thing two photographs. One is of a house, they're both Polaroids. One is of a house and the other one is of his girlfriend with her two children sitting in front of a fireplace that's wrapped in plastic and I'm like, this is it. I tell Dave Messmore about this house and there's a couple of days that go by that I don't hear from him. At the same time, my father says to me, this is like January 20th, 1990, my father says to me, I have a medical conference and because what's happening over the period of time is my father is literally having meetings with his lawyers, the police are coming to the house. There's posters outside of saying, we are not talking to the police, no press, no this and that, because it starts getting a lot of attention that this woman is missing, right? And this is a small town. As you know, you're from the Midwest. You you get it. And, I'm like sounding the alarm every day talking about this because I have like, as many people know, and nothing, not, nothing has changed, so that's why doing a podcast is a good thing. I don't ever shut up. And I, <laughs> I clearly love the sound of my own voice. So I am this But you're like,
0: asking for help.
1: Yeah, I am literally this like amplified voice for my mother the entire time. So my father says, I have a medical conference in Florida. I'm going to take you to. And I literally at that moment realize I ain't coming back from Florida alive. I tell Dave Massimura, I'm like, he wants to take me to Florida. And I was like, Dave, I've been able to swim since I was like four years old. I'm gonna drown the Gulf of Mexico, like <laughs> straight up. And I'm like, you gotta get me out of my house. And that's what happened. And they, you know, I wake up in the morning and they, they yank me out of the house. And, and um, it wasn't until that next day which was just, which was January 25th 1990 that it's all over the papers and they tell me that you know Lieutenant Messmore found your mother and she was dead and you know I wish I could just say that like that's sort of where it ended <laughs> but that was actually like pretty much the beginning <laughs> because And it's an odd sort of situation and not to give too much away because like I said, I talk about this on my podcast in a lot more depth. But it was like this sense of relief ran over me because I knew that I wasn't crazy. But at the same time, this like overwhelming sadness as the one person who I loved more than anything in this world was dead and it was confirmed and and even though I knew it in my heart and it was just this wild sort of situation so you know it's um I testified at the grand jury to secure my father's indictment because there was no like strong physical evidence everything was circumstantial you know and you talked about in your podcast <clears throat> you talked about in your podcast um you know some of these cases where you know, and and I think that something that I, I really caught that you said was, you know, these investigate, you know, we get a lot of, there's a lot of talk about bad police work, shady cops planting evidence. But the majority of the time when things are creatively adjusted in law enforcement, it's because they think that the, what they're doing is the right thing. Like they're like, okay, this th- this guy did it yeah, okay, so let's put the hacksaw in his truck. Like we know he killed his wife or whatever that is, right? And I'm using hacksaw just based on your episode you shared with me, right? So um, that was not the case with my father. And I think that, um, you know, so there was circumstantial evidence. There was no hard evidence. And I was able to sort of pin all the details. And because I had such a, you know, a, a fantastic memory and I gave these details. I gave them to the grand jury. They secured the indictment for my mother's murder because they literally, they dug my mother's, but so for those of you listening, they dug my mother's body up from the basement floor of this home that I found the photo of. And my mother was buried underneath the basement floor, wrapped in a tarp, plastic bag over her head. The, The grave had been covered with indoor-outdoor carpeting, new shelves built. Everything was newly painted. It was all this stuff. And it wasn't, you know, police investigators have found a, a paint splatter on the wall and that's what led them to it. And, but this was, you know, sort of my armchair detective work as a child to find this house. And it's not because this is 1990. There's no Zillow. You know, you can't just be like, oh, I want to check this thing. Right. You know, and, it, and I'm it's- gonna I mean, it. I'm going to Google it. everyone's going to Google it. Exactly. So there was a lot of things and- that were interesting and also that the documents on the house you know were signed N Sherry Boyle so Sherry was my father's mistress's name and N was my mother's first initial for Noreen her middle name was Schmid and Boyle obviously was her last name so N S B would have been you know and it was said that she was asked to do that by my father. I don't know. But like you would have found a house that was purchased by my, like the documents would have matched. Like everything was so calculated. That's why it's premeditated murder. And, and it's interesting when people watch a murder in Mansfield and they're like, oh, you know, we have, a, you, you know, it's so, it's such a, it's such a shame. Your father killed it. It's like, no, no, no. My father, this was premeditated. This wasn't like a crime of passion. Like my father had been planning this out because there were witnesses that said my mother had said that my father told her, I'm taking you to Erie one way or another. So this whole thing is just like completely unraveled. So as a consequence of all of this, not only losing my mother and losing my father, I was then sent to the foster care system because my mother's family And my father's family, my father's family was like, "You're going to put your father in prison." I'm like, "Damn right I am." And my mother's family is is like, "You look like your father, and we hate your father." So they both abandoned me. They both said, "Blue skies, green lights, blue skies, green lights, fucker, have have a nice life." And you didn't
0: just lose your parents; you lost everyone.
1: I lost everything in my life, and
0: and you were 11. And I was 11. And listeners, we're going to take a short break. You didn't just lose your parents. You lost everyone.
1: I lost everything in my life. And
0: And you were 11.
1: And I was 11. And I was about ready to testify. I I, I had nobody. And the one person that was like the most supportive and that could have comforted me and been like, it's okay, Collier, had been taken from me, which was my mother, obviously. And so it was a very... Scary, dark time for me. And, but I knew. And the crazy thing is, is that my father, of course, assembles this like crack lawyer team. And, you know, it's like, and this is like the trial is this, is a fiasco. It's like the OJ, it's like that they literally called it the trial of the century.
0: I'm just sitting here with my mouth hanging open.
1: <laughs> just, and look, you know. And I was the star witness. And, <clears throat> You know, there's often, you know, there, there was a lot of talk and a lot of conspiracy theories. And my father, of course, used these to try to get appeals and things of that nature saying, well, you know, people look at it. Well, we saw the witness, you know, because the very unique thing is I testified for two days at my father's murder trial, staring my father down in court. And it was televised on television live So I'm in the courtroom with all these cameras and everything. And people are like, well, you know, he's coached. He's so good at what he's saying. He's obviously been coached, which is absolutely one of the most insulting things that anyone can ever say to me, because here's the, here's the fact of the matter is one, I was a very intelligent kid two, nothing I ever said was wavered and three to be on the witness stand for two days testifying against your father for the murder of your mother and not like that is a lot to memorize for a kid that's coached and the reason why it sounds so good and when i'm in cross examination i I, i'm like no that's not what happened is because the easiest thing in life to remember is the truth so when you're telling the truth it's so pure that it flows because You're telling the truth and you're being honest. And when somebody tries to trip you up, you say, no, that is not what happened. And this is why, because this is what happened. And people don't seem to always understand that, that there is this, you know, very genuine and and real, like there's this authenticity with me on the witness stand is like, you are literally, if you see the trial footage and it is in the murder in Mansfield, but you know, this is like, this is war, (laughs) like I'm like, and, and the thing that people I think don't often understand it, I don't even fully understand it, but as I develop my story and as I talk about it more, as I talk to other survivors and, you know, one of the things I've been become very passionate about is missing persons cases. And look, let's, let's just say, you know, call it what it is. It's mostly women that are victims of this and it's domestic violence. And then they go missing and then it's like, oh, they got into a fight and then, you know, People do like to scream bloody murder, that the cops aren't doing anything, that this isn't happening, that that isn't happening. But the fact of the matter is, is that A, there's so many of these cases and B, when the lead turns cold, you know, like there's nothing they can do. And, and, you know, you're talking about if somebody is missing. And one of the things I try to tell people is you have to like, it sucks, but you have to be an advocate for that person. You have to, you have to be this annoying little fucking kid that won't leave the detective alone, you know, and even, and Dave Messmore is a, is a fantastic human being and a fantastic investigator. Thank you. Is a fantastic investigator and was, but at the same time, like my persistence like really drove him to like, because his captain is saying, this is a doctor. We don't go after these people. This is a small town in Ohio. We don't do this. These people have stature. And he goes, yeah, but this kid, this kid won't leave me alone. And it's so rare. And I and like I said, as I talk about this more and more, I start to discover like, oh shit, had I not done that, I the outcome would have been different. The flip side is, is that people also don't understand is and this is again where I get annoyed where people are like, oh, you're a coach, or oh, you were forced to testify, or this, that. It's like, no. In fact, the prosecutor said, You don't have to testify. We don't need you. Call you. because they didn't want to put me through it. Now, coming out the other side, and as an adult, they're like, if you didn't testify, your father, your father probably would have gone, could have possibly gone free. Um, and I knew that I knew that I was the linchpin in the entire case because I could testify to his character. I could testify to his violence. I could testify. And there were other people that did do that, but I could put him at the scene, of the crime at the time, in the dates, in the things. And this is what happened here. This is what happened there at this time, at this date. And it was very pedantic with my details. And the thing is, is that people don't seem to understand is look, my life is already over. So my father is Italian. (laughs) My father is uh, um, a very violent man to begin with. I mean, his temper is apoplectic. And if he goes, so if I testify, because I know it's the right thing to do, if he goes free, my life is already over is my life is already over. And then my life is even more over because I will probably go back to his custody at some point, And he will probably make the rest of my life a living hell. Remember that time you testified against me for your mother's murder. I, I mean, it just, and I didn't, you know, I sort of realized it at the time, uh, how high the stakes were. But as I continue to develop this story and discuss more of it and talk to other victims and survivors, I really realized through, through my podcast, moving past murder, shameless plug. Um, I definitely I definitely start to realize the gravity of what I was dealing with and and how fortunate I was to sort of put my head down and just go, this is what I'm doing, and I'm not and I'm gonna be unwavering in this and I'm not gonna let him get away with it. And you know, I I think I say to you know, people, you know, that are in these situations is is you have to you have to be you really I mean Sarah Turney is a great example, right? You have to be a fucking advocate for these people because nobody else is going to be. And it takes a tremendous amount of courage. It takes a tremendous amount of fortitude. It takes a tremendous amount of just, I mean, I don't even know. It's, it's, and it's, you know, it's 30 years later and it's still hard. It doesn't get any easier. That's for sure.
0: I can't even begin to imagine what you went through or how you found the strength inside of yourself to do this as a child without a support system, without your champion. It's just, it's unbelievable.
1: Yeah. I mean, I found a lot of comfort in Dave Messmore. I mean, he was great, but I mean, obviously when you're the witness You you don't get to interact with the cop. (laughs) Now, after the trial and everything, and after my father's conviction, we had a a relationship and they were going to adopt me and it didn't work out that way. Um, I was very fortunate to be adopted into a wonderful family. Um, But, uh, you know, that, that relationship definitely helped a lot in sort of healing post, you know, post my father's conviction. I mean, the trial went on for almost a month. Oh, it's a long That's time. It's a long time. <laughs> it's a long time. And it was yeah. every minute was televised and it was like a soap opera. And, you know, <clears throat> it's, it's very strange because, and I, and I've only recently started thinking about this, but, you know, I obviously have worked in Hollywood for, I mean, I've been here for almost, well, I've been here for 20 years, not almost I've been here for 20 years now. And I. I. I kind of relate a lot of my experience back to being like a child actor. You know, like the, the kid that's on the sitcom that grows up in front of your eyes. Like that was sort of my experience because people really connected with that story and just kind of watched me grow up, right? So it's uh, it's a challenge for sure. And I don't know where I was going. I sort of lost my train of thought. But, um, you know, I guess, I, I guess what I'm saying is it's not an easy feat, but you have to just really be that advocate because it's it, it unfortunately has not changed. It's very sad to see these things. I mean, look at this case that you did from nineteen ninety nine, but the the Islam case, Tracy Islam. So it's it's
0: No, it's it's keeps happening.
1: There's no shortage of it, unfortunately. And
0: No. No. And I, you know, I do work as a missing persons advocate and I try and be there for the family members and be a support to them because they, they want, you know, they want to talk to the detective. They want, to, they want hourly feedback. They want to know. And it's just if they're on the phone with you, they're not necessarily working on the case. So I try and fill in some of that for the family and be there for them um, if they need sure. to talk or they need to vent or what have you. Um, but it doesn't get any easier, you know?
1: Yeah. I think you said to me on the phone, you said, you know, you'll do that and you'll be okay. But have you eaten today? Have you like, what's going on? Like how, okay. So are you drinking enough water? Are you taking care of yourself? Because if you don't do that, then we're, then you're useless, you know, because people will become wrapped up in this too. And it's, it's, um,
0: Oh, absolutely. It's all consuming
1: trauma. Yeah. Anything in trauma is about balance. And, you know, I do an episode about this as, you know, there's a routine to it. There's balance to it. It's, um, yeah.
0: One of the things (laughs) I tell families is that you're, you're part of a marathon, you know, you have to pace yourself. You have to find that that balance, like you said, because if you treat it like a sprint, you're going to burn out, and then you can't help anyone.
1: And it's not; it's a marathon. And this is the interesting thing, and this is what I caught in your in your episode about Islam. And this is this is absolutely true with my father. Ironic that they're both doctors, by the way, or or, or doctorate like people, doctor like people.
0: Yeah, well educated. Um, he, he
1: was yeah, well educated. It, it plays into this narcissism and sociopathy, and like this God complex thing. It's it, it, that's what I, it, what I found very interesting is this common theme of like, I'm going to do something that is so egregious <laughs> and I'm going to get away with it. And I'm going to do, you know, one of the things I caught in that particular episode was um, about the dumpster about him being short and having to like involve his neighbor who he'd never met before, like to lift the garbage bin into his car, which was lined in plastic. And like, It's like, do you you just think everyone around you is fucking stupid? (laughs) Like my, my, and they, and they do, and they do. And that's, so I guess this is going back to that, you know, and, and for the listeners, you're, you, you, you talk about this guy putting the limbs into this giant trash bin instead of, or the the vat of grease and the, things like that, instead of just throwing it into the regular trash, which would have gone straight to the landfill and nobody probably would have found it. But because he went this extra mile to try to cover his tracks. And, the, and so back to your marathon com- comment, why it's a, a marathon and not a sprint, other than the fact that when the person goes missing, you need to report them. You know, you need to be proactive. Like that's the sprint part. But the marathon is is people that engage in this type of behavior, from my personal experience, is that you give them enough rope, they will hang themselves. Because to be able to carry out something like this is sociopathy, narcissism. And because you have that on your side, that this is the way these people are, they are prone to mistakes simply out of their own hubris. They are prone to leaving these little crumbs and it might not be blood it might not be fingerprints but it is behavior it is changes in behavior that they don't perceive that people realize and go or comments that they make or
0: they tell on themselves
1: they tell on themselves it's very very it's very very interesting but yeah that's my story sort of in a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell.
0: Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm, um you know, I have some trauma in my background. Nothing not even close to comparable to what you've described and some days I have to revisit it and I find it just absolutely exhausting. Like it wipes me out for the rest of the day. Do you have that experience as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have that experience and then you know, and as I continue to do this more and more with the podcast and with, you know, talking, I just recently started posting all this on TikTok and TikTok blew up and it, it, the thirst for this. And, and it's great because I'm causing, I'm, I'm I'm bringing a lot of awareness to all of this, which is actually the very rewarding thing. And it's, you know, it's, it's why I made the film and it's, it's why I moved to to LA is to get away from all of this um You know, from the stigma of being that kid whose dad murdered his mom, but also to tell her story, to share with the audience, like, this is what, this is um, the very real consequences of violence. But, but to be quite honest with you, like, I haven't taken my foot off the gas 30 some years. It's a, it's a little...
0: So are you drinking enough water?
1: I am drinking. I drink a lot are of water. Are you eating enough protein? I, I'm definitely eating a lot of protein. And and that's also the thing too, is when you are in these, when you sort of in, in this, um, and I do a, I do actually a an episode about this uh, a little bit ago, um, a few episodes back with this guy named Dr. Angel Iscovich, and he wrote a book called The Art of Routine. Now his, the book is, is more of like business related and things. But I say, you know, for me, I relate to that because when you're in trauma, like one of the things that really does lead you out of that is having a routine. So like for me, it's like regular exercise. It's a good diet. It's like, you know, during the pandemic, I quit drinking, you know, it's all these little things that you just really practicing things like self-care and love and loving yourself. And it's way easier said than done. That's for sure. Um, But it is something that I think is so key Because if you're not going to be rested and look, it's it's also much easier said than done because it is hard to rest. But if you're, if you're in these situations, I think what I would say to anyone who finds himself in this situation is, is you got to take care of yourself because you're not going to be any good to anyone, especially not the person you're trying to, to find the person you're trying to help. It's not going to work. So yeah. Self-care.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, working as a missing persons advocate and doing the work that I do, I'm actually I, I mentioned earlier before we got started that I'm going to Mexico next week. I'm unplugging. I'm not doing any social media next week. Uh, I'm, t- I'm not taking my laptop. I'm going to bring my phone because my kids are here, but I, I plan on doing like a nice detox and getting away from all of it for a few days.
1: No stories, no stories, but we want to see what, what beautiful Mexico looks like. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, maybe, maybe I'll post a couple pictures to Instagram, but by and large, I, I'm going to unplug. And, and I think that's sure. important too. Um, can you tell listeners where they can find you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on all the social media platforms at Collier Landry. Uh, you can go to my website, collierlandry.com. Um, my podcast that I host is called Moving Past Murder. You can uh, download that on all the platforms where you regularly consume your podcast media. And look, my, my podcast is, is true crime from a true crime survivor's perspective. And a lot of it covers one of the things that's very interesting that is very unique to me is I tell my story, but I also share my father's letters from prison and him to show manipulation and sociopathy firsthand because no one's ever heard them. And I have 500 of them. (laughs) Wow. Over the course of 30 years. And so I read these letters where my father is essentially like gaslighting me from about my mother's murder, not admitting it all this. And, and, you know, to, to really show the insidious nature of this behavior and to, and, and, it has really been invaluable for my listeners, for my audience base, for uh, people on social media that see what I'm doing, and it's a, become this massive labor of love. And I love, love, love doing it. And I'm, I'm very, I'm very aggressively tur- turning this into a career for myself because I'm, I'm so passionate about it. And I'm, you know, look, I'm just a kid that loved his mother, and I still am, and you know, Father's Day is right around the corner too. It's, it's like, these are tough times, you know, it's Mother's Day every year, it's Father's Day every year, it's New Year's Eve. It's like when she was murdered, it's holidays. And then all those things are super, are, are just really, really challenging sort of yearly milestones for me every year. And I have to, I have to sort of, you know, take it in and people are like, oh, do you have a ritual? And yeah, sometimes I guess I do. But again, a lot of it is just really being attuned to yourself and, and you know, for those listeners that might be going through something similar to this, you know, you also have to just really always keep in mind just to be kind to yourself because this isn't your fault. You're not responsible for the actions of these monsters, and you're also not you know, you're you're gonna go through phases. You're gonna go through sort of self destructive phases. You're gonna whether that self destruction is is, you know, in relationships where you're not open to things or, or whether it's, you know, it, 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 choose your self-destruction, whether it's substance abuse or usage or, or just, you know, or, or cutting or, or things like, you're going through trauma and you have to really understand that there's no shame in this and that there's no, um, there's no, like, you're doing the right thing. Just take a breath, take a beat. You'll get through it. And that's ultimately like why I did the film, why I moved here, why I got into the film business, to tell my mother's story, is to literally speak to that one kid that was literally sitting there in foster care saying, I don't, like, what is going to happen to me? And I wanted to be that voice to say, you're going to be okay. You're going to make it through.
0: Yeah, you made it. You did. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Editing this week was provided by Bill Burt, and Olivia Holmesley is our production assistant. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.